This is episode 123 of the Dear Discreet Guide Trouble at Work podcast. This episode is titled, America's Last Great Newspaper War. This episode is part of our ongoing series about journalism and journalists. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Dear Discreet Guide Trouble at Work, where we talk about work, working, and how to make work better. If it's work-related, we're on it. Who knew talking about work would be this much fun? I'm Jennifer Crittenden, a former CFO and host of the show, and thank you for joining our quest to improve our workplaces. Let's do this. As part of our series on journalists and journalism, I'm really delighted to welcome uh, a new guest to the show, Michael Jacarino. He is the author of America's Last Great Newspaper War, The Death of Print in a Two-Tabloid Town, which is a lively read that we'll talk about today. He started out at Notre Dame, but ended up graduating from the University of Pennsylvania with a BA in English. And then he started writing for the Philadelphia Inquirer, Asbury Park Press, the Jersey Journal, Investment Advisor Magazine, the Press of Atlantic City, and he was covering all kinds of things, politics, crime, horse racing, finance, you name it. He then moved to New York to work first for a travel magazine, and then he joined the New York Daily News, which is our topic for today, uh, where he worked from 2006 to 2011 starting as a national correspondent and Metro reporter, and then becoming the Bronx beat reporter, and finally moved to the rewrite desk. And he's appeared on television on MSNBC, CNN, Fox News, and ESPN. So welcome to the show, Mike. Hey, Jennifer. Thanks for having me. Really, really glad to be here. So the book harkens back to a time when there were two dailies in New York City, duking it out for dominance. And it's a a time that, for me at least, evokes some nostalgia now when I read the stories that you were covering then. So set it up for us. What were the two papers and who were you working for and what was going on? So um, I, was, I was a staff writer for the New York Daily News. Uh, New York is a, is a great news town. It has um, two tabloids, uh, the New York Daily News and the New York Post, its arch enemy. There are a lot of other papers in New York City, the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, uh, Newsday out on Long Island, and, and a lot of other now websites and, and smaller publications. But those are, those are really the main ones. Uh, we didn't really compete with the with the Wall Street Journal or the, the New York Times. Those those were more international and uh, national focused newspapers. Newsday was focused on Long Island. Uh, they would show up at, at scenes. When I say scenes, I mean breaking news scenes, but. For, for purposes of, of what we did at the Daily News, it was really all about the posts. And, and let me let me kind of set the, the, the context for your, for your listeners. May I, may I go back in time for a bit to, to kind of lay the, the groundwork for, for what they're about to, to hear about and kind of give them a sense of, of what, what, where the news post rivalry started and how it all got going? Yeah, I think that'd be really helpful to all of us. Yeah, so... Um, the uh, the Daily News was was first published in, in the mid 1920s and it, it soon became the uh, the largest newspaper in the country. I mean, it, it you think about that the circulation of newspapers today it, it it certainly 
major metros. Uh, these are numbers that, that you'll never see again from a, mm. uh, anything like a major metro, even a major metro newspaper. I mean, the Daily News at its height in the 1940s, the 50s, it was the largest circulated paper in the country. It sold about, I don't know, 2.5, 2.7 million copies daily. When I say daily, I mean Monday through Friday. Wow. And it had an even bigger Sunday offering, um, probably upwards of, of 3 million, if not approaching four. The Post, meanwhile, uh, was a much smaller paper. It was, for anybody familiar with the New York Post, it was, it was a much different iteration than the, uh, than the paper that, you, that you, uh, you probably think of today. It was for a long time, it was a broadsheet, um, meaning that you open it up uh, rather than a tabloid, which opens like a book. Mm-hmm. It, it covered uh, uh, serious, weighty topics like national affairs and education, and it had a, a very restrained and sober layout. And then everything changed in 1976. And that was the year that uh, a name that, that will be familiar to a lot of your audiences, uh, Rupert Murdoch, bought the paper. Murdoch was, a, was a, um, an established newspaper guy at that point. I think the Post was his 84th or 85th newspaper. He was in his 40s, if you can imagine that. And he, and he already owned 84, 85 newspapers. But you know, he moved into New York City uh, with his purchase of the Post. And he, he changed um, what the Post is and made it what it is today. He, ter- he, he, he focused heavily on crime and all the, um, the gritty, you know, urban noir type stuff that a, that a major metro tabloid focuses on. He instituted uh, uh, the sort of headlines that, that you associate with the New York Post, like headless body found in topless bar and all that type <laughs> of stuff, which is probably one of the more, more famous lurid uh, New York Post uh, headlines. He, uh, he hired the most garish cartoonist in the, in the country, uh, Paul Rigby. Uh, he devoted half the paper to sports. He instituted page six in 1977, um, which, which is a, a major gossip property even today. And um, he enlarged photos and, you know, he turned it into the, you know, the, the pirate ship, you know, that it is, that, that it is today when you think mm-hmm. about what the New York Post is. Mm-hmm. And, but it was small. It, it only had a circulation of about when he bought it about four hundred seventy thousand, and it didn't even publish on Sundays. And it was an after, more importantly, it was an afternoon newspaper, which meant that uh, it came out in the it came out when people were on their way home from work to get the closing stock prices. The news, meanwhile, was still, if not the largest uh, paper in the country, it was you know around about there. Uh, its circulation at, at, in 1976 probably was around 1.7, 1.9 million. Uh, its Sunday offering was even larger. Uh, it was a tabloid, so it did a lot of the things the Post did before Murdoch took over the Post. But more importantly, it was a morning paper, which meant that people got it on their way to work. The strap hangers, the the subway, the the, the commuters got it, and they read it on the subway while they were headed to work. So the papers didn't really compete. Mm-hmm. The way that somebody described it to me was that that you know we sort of competed, but. It, only in the sense that there were two papers in the same town. It, it wasn't anywhere near a, a Hatfield McCoy, you know, Red Sox Yankees type rivalry at that point. Um, but from the moment, again, from the moment that Rupert Murdoch bought the Post, he sort of realized that newspapers, uh, New York City, was only going to be big enough for one of these papers, and he was obsessively intent uh, on on eradicating the news from almost the moment that he he took over the paper. In March of 1980, he made it a morning offering. He made it a morning paper. Oh, yeah. Um, the, book, the book recounts all this. The, the way that he made it a, a morning offering is, is, uh, 
is pretty dramatic. It, it came out of a, pre, a pressman strike uh, that lasted several months in New York City, which is, you know, you have to, I'm not going to get into the, the minutia of it, but it's, it's, pretty, it's pretty interesting how it all unfolded. But then, you know, as of, as of March of 1980, they were competing head to head. So now they're going after, now not only are they uh, the same in substance and style, but they're, they're fighting over the same readers, um, people who go to work in the morning. And the, the rivalry really took off from there mm-hmm. to the point when, when, I, when I got my job at the news, the, the editor, the city editor, during my interview, he didn't really ask me about my resume or you know, what I had done or what my aspirations were. If anybody's had a, a job interview, just think about this. He asked me instead, what are you going to do to help us beat the post? Right. Uh, I mean, it, it's, it's, that really kind of frames it. So by the time I got to the, the, the news in, in um, October of 2006, the, the circulation divide between the two. Remember what, when back in 1976 when the Murdoch bought the post, there was a, a massive you know, 1.5 million circulation readership separating the two, mm-hmm. 470,000 versus you know, 1.9 million or so. But it, the, the distance had slowly contracted. And then the month that I got my job at the news, circulation figures came out for the prior six months. And it was the first time in the history of both papers that the Post had surpassed the news and circulation for, in the history of both papers. And there's a lot of reasons for that. The middle class of New York City was moving out to the suburbs. Uh, this was a, a, you know, a gradual process that began in, in, in the 1950s and continued as, as New York sort of if you could think about the movie Escape from New York and what New York became in the 70s and, and the 80s, um, you know, white middle class uh, outer borough, when I say outer borough, I mean Brooklyn, Queens, and Staten Island and the Bronx didn't really want to live in New York anymore. They moved out to Westchester and Long Island and Jersey. And that was the news's core readership. So that, you know, and there were other reasons, uh, you know, that the Daily News had a strike um, and, and had its own troubles. But the point is that by the time I got there, they were neck and neck. And that was the first time the Post had surpassed the news of circulation in the history of both papers. And there was an added element, right, that made this, this, this what had become a ferocious rivalry over the years, made it a Darwinian existential exercise. Both papers at that point weren't under too much pressure from digital, but you could see the storm clouds on the horizon. You could see that things were going to change dramatically. In 2006, people weren't consuming news on their mobile devices. They didn't have the bandwidth for that. So, you know, people still bought the paper, Mm -hmm. but it was only a matter of time. And at that point, we were openly discussing the people on the street and we can get into, you know, who, you know, why I was on the street and, you know, why I was in the field. But we were openly talking about, you know, post reporters and news reporters, which one of these papers was going to be left standing in the end. I see. And that really made a, you know, this long lasting tabloid fight, an existential one. And it made it gonzo. It turned everything that we did into a, it, it just, it added an intensity and an urgency that really led to some tabloid madness. So that, that really kind of sets the scene for, for this book. You know, it, it ignited a tabloid war where only one paper was going to be left standing in the end. And the things that we did, we brought a, a commensurate level of intensity and insanity to everything that we did on every story because we had to. That was the way it was. So you were a runner or sometimes I guess you were called a chaser 
uh, someone who was boots on the ground in pursuit of a story. And who were the other characters that would be involved, uh, both on your team and on the opposing team, if you want to call them that? And uh, tell us how they dressed and what they looked like. So let me let me explain. Can I exp- let me explain, explain to your your readership what a runner is? Because I didn't know what a runner was until until I got to the news. This is a very strange way of going about journalism. Um, you know, as you, you graciously said in the in the intro, you know, I'd been a reporter for a while before I got to the Daily News, and this wasn't the way that things worked. The way that it worked was you went out to a, a, an event, uh, you, you gathered the information, you witnessed it, you talked to people, and then you came back and you wrote it up, and then it appeared under your byline, right? But at the Daily News and the Post, um, there was a division of labor. There were the people who worked in the field who went out and gathered this information. And then instead of going back and writing it up, what you did was you called the rewrite desk and then you dumped your notes. That was the word we used. You would basically read off your notepad everything that you had gotten. And then that that person who was a specialized writer, they didn't do anything. They never picked up a phone. And you, as a runner, never went into the office. I think I was in the newsroom two or three times my, my whole first year at the news. And then you would you would you would dump the notes, and then you would move on to the next location. And then you were we called this movement of going from location to location to location running, because there was an urgency with getting to every scene that we went to. And there's a couple of reasons why this it was different this way in, in New York City from from other places. Uh, I mean, New York City is a big place; it's 305 square miles. Uh, and if anybody's ever visited there, it, it presents all sorts of crazy logistical hurdles for getting to places. The traffic is insane. Mm-hmm. You got to go through various tunnels and bridges. And, you know, this, it's it's very difficult to get from one end of town to another. Uh, you know, it could take you four hours if you're going during rush hour to get from downtown Manhattan to the Bronx. You know, it basically might only be nine miles, but you're going to pay for that nine miles. So it, it's really not practical to to leave the office, go to the scene, get the stuff, and then come back and write it on deadline. So that that was why we divided the labor. But it, but it kind of it kind of created an interesting dynamic. The people who worked in the field were colorful, to say the least. <laughs> You know, if you're if you're if you're constantly running, 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 running from one location to the next, to breaking news scene, to breaking news scene, you're wrapped up at this one. You go, I would hit I would hit five boroughs in a single day. Sometimes, sometimes you would you would hit three boroughs, and then the cell phone would ring, and then the you know the city editor would say, you know, get on the next plane to California or uh, you know wherever news had broken. You know, I, I remember one time I was I was out in front of a you know the morgue in Bellevue, uh, or First Avenue, waiting for some news to break. And, you know, the phone rang and the city editor said, just drive east. Right. Oh, he didn't yeah. say anything else. He just said, drive <laughs> east. And then he hung up. <laughs> right. I remember that. So I got on the, L- the Long Island Expressway and I started driving east. And it wasn't I didn't speak to him again for two and a half hours. And it was only then that he told me that Paul McCartney had been you know, spotted wandering around the, the beach in the Hamptons with a married woman named Nancy Chevelle. I mean, that was the kind of craziness um, that, that, uh, that, that we did. But the interesting thing is that wherever we went, right. Wherever we went, wherever we ran to, the post was running as well. The, the way that it would work was we were, you know, each paper would geographically disperse their runners around the city strategically and their shooters, right? Because we always work with a photographer. There's two parts to a story. There's the images and then there's the information. 
So, you know, you, you might you might have one guy in North Brooklyn, guy in South Brooklyn, you know, same thing in Queens, a couple spaced out over the Bronx, and they would space them out. And we'd all be waiting in our cars for something to happen, listening to the scanner, um, you know, listening to the NYPD and the FDNY dispatch frequencies. And then when something would happen, you would hear it, you know, fire in Woodside, you know, three alarm fire. That was the starting pistol on a race. And you would you would literally race to the location to get there first, to beat the post to the location. Because it was of paramount importance to get to the location first, right? Because if you get there late, the cops are going to put up the police tape and you're not going to get close. This is Ray Kelly's police department. They don't like sharing information very much. Uh, you know, number two, witnesses are going to disperse. You need to get to the, the first hit, the witnesses who have actually witnessed, have seen whatever the story is to interview them to find out what happened. And they're going to walk away at some point. And third, very often, because these were tabloids dealing with crime and fire, we were chasing death or, in, you know, stories that involved death. Mm-hmm. And nobody wants to talk about the death of their loved one once, never mind twice. There was always this reporter from Newsday who was who was late arriving on scenes, not not through any fault of his own, but only because Newsday was out in Long Island and they were you know not as plugged in as the Daily News and the Post, and he was always getting to scenes late, and he was always being forced to ask sudden you know newly minted widows or mothers who had just lost their child. He was always asking them to repeat what they had already said, mm-hmm. and and what he got was never as good as what we got the News and the Post and. Um, Sometimes he never got anything at all. As far as what we wore, uh, you know, we wore jeans, uh, you know, and a button down um, and, and sneakers. You didn't want to dress up too much because then they would think that you're a cop. And, and because these instant, these incidents that we were covering very often happened in low income neighborhoods, mm-hmm. you didn't want to show up. You, you wanted to dress like the people that you were interviewing. You know, there was this reporter who always, he must have gone to some fancy school or, you know, or he was, he was new on the street and he would show up wearing, you know, penny loafers and, and uh, he was dressed as if he was ready to go to church on Sundays. And, and he never, you know, people distrusted him. They didn't want to talk to him. Mm -hmm. Uh, And we used to make fun of him because it was a grittiness to what we did. It was a, a... you know, you're going into sometimes in the most awful neighborhoods, you're talking to people during the most awful moments of their lives. You need to look like them. You need to talk like them. You need to establish sometimes in a very brief period of time, some sort of sympathetic connection that will allow them to feel comfortable enough to open their hearts to you. Um, So, but again, we were constantly in motion. If you read this book, you'll see like, you know, the run, you're constantly running, 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 moving to location, to location, to location. And no matter where you went, the post was there as well. I, I have one great story that kind of captures this, um, that gives you a sense of just how heated the battle was at the point that I was there and how far afield of New York City this battle took us. You know, in 2008, there was this State University of New York basketball player. He was only in the United States. He, he had come over from Serbia uh, because he was he was only here to play basketball, and uh, he was he was an import. And he he, he must have gotten drunk one night at a bar, and he pummeled a, a, a fellow student into a coma during a brawl. And he fled the cops. He got the first thing he did. He got on the plane. And he flew back to Serbia before they could arrest him. Mm-hmm. 
So this wasn't even a New York story. This had happened up in, in, in upstate New York, up, up uh, you know, up by Albany or whatever. And um, so the news sent my colleague, Rich Shapiro, out to, to Serbia. The guy lived with his family 90 miles north of Belgrade. So by the time Rich got to, got on the ground, he, he got a fixer and uh, who spoke the language and he got to the door and he knocked on it to interview the family and, and find out what the deal was. They told him or they told the fixer in, in Serbian that the post had already been there. Mm. And not only had they already interviewed the family, but they had extracted a promise not to get uh, to give any interviews to late arriving daily news reporters. I mean, just think about that for a second. Two American metro newspapers conducting a door knock in Serbia. <laughs> and then you get there and you find out that your crosstown competitor has already been there. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's no better representation of of just the lunacy of, of what took place um, between the Daily News and the Post. Yeah, the the descriptions that you have in there are really just amazing. Partly, you know, all the stakeouts and running for photos. So it's sort of part gumshoe, part madcap, and then also a lot of just absurdity from the extreme measures, both at the corporate level, but also at the personal level. And you tell this story about all this intrigue about the Miss New Jersey competition in which you're just running hither and yon, trying to collect information. And and mostly what you're going for is a quote. So tell us, um, after all your work on that, what finally happened in the end for you to get your quote? So this is an amazing story. This 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 is great. So if anybody watches the the Miss the Miss America pageant, uh, each state nominates a contestant, right? So so Miss New Jersey, the New Jersey contestant for that year, I think it was two thousand seven. She she had received a, a packet in the mail, blackmailing her with some incriminating photos, uh, which were really just photos that were stolen from her Facebook profile of her. She was, a, you know, she was in her young twenties. Maybe she had some racy shots. They weren't anything really too bad, but you know, she had received this, this package from some, from people calling themselves the committee to um, the, the committee to protect Miss America or something like that. Oh yeah. Right. Demanding that she relinquish her crown before the competition. So you can imagine what, how, how these two warring tabloids, right. Uh, reacted. <laughs> was it like, really like a, a big story but we fought every story the point was that you know because we knew that there was only going to be one paper left at the end every story took on monumental importance mm-hmm. every story felt like the pentagon papers and we we treated it as such so uh, you know i i probably spent 10 days uh you know right chasing after this woman it became my job to find her and she didn't want to be found and, and uh, we staked out her home and wherever I went, of course, the post was, you know, I, I would, I would chase, she lived in, in central New Jersey. So I chased her around for a very long time. <laughs> and, uh, um, you know, finally, finally what happened was uh, the story got bumped off the, the front page by, by some real news. Two cops have been killed. This, this is, this is, you know, two or three chapters in, in the book. So we're chasing after her and we're chasing after the other beauty pat the, the, the runners up because the runners up are out, you know, they were, they were possible uh, suspects. Right. In, in, uh, in trying to unseat their, their, their competition. So at the very moment that, that I'd finally, uh, um, finally gotten her lawyer to agree to give me an interview, real news broke. 
these two cops were 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 involved in a gun battle in 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 um in in Brooklyn, and one of them got killed. You know, I remember uh, the day that that I had finally convinced her lawyer to give me a, a sit down interview and and scoop the post. I got a call that morning at four a.m. Um, the morning assignment editor, you know, called me up and said, you know, race to race to Brooklyn. You got to get out to the scene. And I tried to tell him I have an interview at, at 30 Rockefeller Center today with with because she was she was going to go on with Matt Lauer on the, the Today Show that that morning. And I was supposed to talk to her afterward. And he's like, forget that. And I had spent 10 days, you know, trying to get this interview. <laughs> and then, um, you know, thanks. Yeah. Thanks, boss. <laughs> yeah. Right. I was like, you know, I, I finally had got it. And, and uh, he, you know, he didn't want to hear about it. He's like, yeah, that's that's nothing anymore. Right. <laughs> so I go out to the scene to, to Brooklyn. And this is this is an amazing story. It's all in the book. So I go out to the scene and, and the, the scene is taped off and I'm, we're, we're I'm, I'm, uh, skirmishing with the post on scene. They're trying to get figure out what happened and to get the witnesses that will tell them what happened on scene to get an eyewitness to find anybody who could shed light on what had taken place during this gun battle in the early morning hours of the night before I think it happened I don't know one two o'clock in the morning and I'm, I'm calling while I'm doing this I'm calling the lawyer and I'm trying to arrange for uh you know the interview to take place and the city editor does you know he doesn't he doesn't really want to hear it but eventually I prevail upon him and I tell him listen they're going to give me a chance to, to, to talk to this woman uh, at, at 4 p.m. in a hotel in Manhattan. And he tells me, just hold scene. I'll get relief there for you. I'll relieve you at the scene and I'll send another runner out there to replace you in Brooklyn. But, it, you know, it, it gets to be, you know, 2.30, 3 o'clock. I know it's going to take me at least 45 minutes to get to Midtown. He's still not there, the replacement. So I leave <laughs> and I head into Midtown and, um, they let me get one quote from her as she's walking out of the uh, out of her hotel, and it was all prearranged ahead of time. We agreed on what she was going to say, and I, I just shouted it at her. You know, hey Amy, her name was Amy Palumbo. I said, hey Amy, what what are you going to do to uh, you know what are you going to tell the, New, the Miss New Jersey committee because she was about to go before the committee to to uh, to make her case that she should be able to to keep her crown in light of the images that had been sent to her because there was there was a real a real uh, um, possibility that the, the committee for New Jersey Miss America w- was going to strip her of the crown once they had seen these photos. Mm-hmm. And she smiled at me and she said, I deserve to keep the crown. And that was it, right? You know, that, that, <laughs> that was one, it. Well, it. It was all arranged ahead of time with her lawyer. That was all he was willing to give me because, uh, you know, but it, it worked out. But meanwhile, back in Brooklyn, right, the Post is is negotiating with it was this daycare center. This is great. There was this daycare center that was caddy corner to where the gun battle had occurred. And they were had a surveillance camera that was attuned to the street where where the the the, the shooting had erupted. And it had captured it. And the post was in negotiations with the daycare center owner to purchase the video. And my relief finally showed up on scene, a legendary runner named Kerry Burke. And he saw from outside the police tape, the post going in and out of the daycare center. And the way he described it to me was there was a police sentry at the tape. And he's like, you know, I saw the post going. He had a very thick Boston accent. His name was Kerry Burke. He's, he's from Dorchester. And he said, brother, you know, I, he, he always called everybody brother. He said, brother, I, I, you know, I, I saw the post going in and out. There's nothing you could do at that point, you know? So I just, I pulled up my tie and I, I, I told that cop, I got to get in there. 
<laughs> and he walked, he, then he, he marched right past the cop. The cop is running after him. He makes his way into the, the daycare center, and he finds out that the Post is about to purchase exclusive video of the gun battle the night before. From the daycare center. From the daycare center. <laughs> and he says, wait a second, I want that video. And the Post guy, who's a photographer named Gary Miller, all right, Gary had, had formerly been a, an undercover narco narcotics detective for New York City until he was injured in the line of duty. And he became, he, strangely enough, he became a, a, a post shooter. So a bidding war erupted. So mm -hmm. Kerry said, I'll give you $10,000 for that video right there and then. Mm -hmm. Kerry's an interesting character, right? He, he's really the king of the runners. He was, he was legendary. There was nothing that was going to stop Kerry. He was just, he, he pursued Getz with like a Jedi-like devotion. And he used to carry around this, this backpack with him. And, and we never knew what was in the backpack. Mm -hmm. We used to kind of, kind of speculate about what, you know, what do you carry in there? Fake mustaches, grappling hooks, you know, <laughs> what, what, what extra notebooks, you know, turns out that he had a checkbook. He would walk around. I don't know about the other stuff, but he, he did have a checkbook in his, in his bag and he mm -hmm. cut a check, personal check out of his own account for 10 grand on the spot without discussing it first with the daily news. So he hands them a check. He wins the bidding war. He walks out of the daycare center with the video, but Carrie doesn't drive. And this is the flaw that would ah. lead to the post victory that day. This is great. So Kerry was one of the few runners not to have a car. He always used mass transit. So the daycare huh. center operator had volunteered to let him, to drive him back to the Daily News' headquarters in Midtown. So he leaves with the video and the daycare center uh, assistant is driving him across. But after he leaves, the post begins to put the screws to the daycare center owner saying, we had a verbal commitment, mm -hmm. right? That you were going to sell us the video. And they had their lawyers get on the phone and threaten the daycare center owner. And she got nervous. And all of this is recounted in the, <laughs> the book. It's really, it's legendary among, among uh, tabloid street personnel. Uh, she gets nervous and frightened. And she calls her subordinate, who is driving at that point, Carrie, over the Brooklyn Bridge, right? He almost got there. He almost <laughs> got back to New York City. And she tells him to turn around and come back and bring the video back. Uh, so yeah. it happens. And the Post got the video, and they bludgeoned the news for days, front mm. page after front page, frame after frame, recounting. They just rolled it out day after day. They knew that they had it. We didn't. Sure. And they just rolled it out day after day. They'd show they wouldn't, they'd hold back a little bit for the following day, and they wouldn't show everything. But you can imagine how dramatic this was, right? You had on image this. And when New York City, when a cop gets shot in New York City, as, as Kerry Burke is, is, is one of his famous sayings, it's like Pearl Harbor, brother, right? It really <laughs> is. It's like every, it's madness. When a cop gets shot in New York, for, at least for the media, everything else stops. And they, they, they had a video of it. And for a week, they ran images of this thing just killing the news. We had nothing to answer them. And, and it, you know, it, 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 there was all kinds of people in, on the street, on the daily news side. What, what would you, we started to play a little parlor game. What would you have done if you had been in the car in Kerry's position? And I remember this crazy photographer. He's like, well, you know, I would have jumped out of the car. I would have jumped <laughs> out of the, the moving car on the Brooklyn Bridge. Man. The video he's, like, run. <laughs> he's like, if I had that video in my hand, there's no way that I was going back. <laughs> so. All of this is taking place like it was. A, it was a very dramatic, uh, you know, two or three days, and it didn't even end there because after after that, 
right? The guys who shot the cop fled to the Poconos and then mm-hmm. a manhunt ensued. And then, uh, you know, I was fortunate enough. I got sent out to cover the manhunt and uh, the news did win the day out there. But, uh, you know, it was just a give and take on a daily basis every day. Who's going to win? Who's going to who's going to win today? Uh, everything, every success that we achieved was viewed in the context of what the post, uh, how much they lacked. And every defeat that we we suffered was judged by virtue of, of how much we had lost versus the post. And you could see it, the physical representation of your of your victory of defeat each day. Mm-hmm. It was the wood, right? That was the word that we used for the front page. You could you could hold in your hand, you know, the fruits of your victory and and judge it next to the post. It was right there in the newsstand every day. I won. I clearly won today. Look, look, you know, it's right there. Or I, you know, I really lost today. Look at that. And and every day the game set anew. And um it was it was really amidst an existential tabloid war. It was really it was madness for a very long period of time. It was fun. Yeah, your book really provides a, a behind the scenes perspective on what you call the trade craft of a runner. When you stay with the pack, when you decide to break away, there all these strategic decisions that are being made on the fly in the midst of all this craziness and crime and tragedy, and it, it's just a nutty. I didn't realize, though, that there was as much collaboration between the papers as you uh, represent. And you explain that the idea there was kind of to keep everybody at the same bare minimum so that nobody would look really terrible. That is, unless they unless they really had a big break. And so that, I thought that was really interesting. Do you think that still happens today? Well, no. Uh, let me let me address that qu- that question in two parts because it's it's very the answers are very revelatory. In in, in so first I'll, I'll I'll talk about the collaboration. Um, look, you saw these people. The point is, everywhere you went, you ran constantly, right? Hitting five boroughs in a single day. You know, I remember when O.J. Simpson got arrested for armed robbery. You know, I headed out to to Las Vegas. Mm-hmm. I, I went to the to one hotel where where he was staying. Couldn't find him. Went to where the break in was occur. Was there for two minutes, and there was the post. Right. Mm-hmm. It's wow. the same thing as the Serbia story. No matter where you went, they were there. So you, you saw the same people day in and day out, and and it, it, you couldn't help but develop some sympathy for these people and 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 some professional respect. I mean, we there was a sense. Look, yeah, we went at each other like cats and dogs, but there was a sense that at least on the level of the street, these people who worked on the street, we're all in this a little bit together, right? So if if you went to a scene and and you and it wasn't like a huge story and and you would somebody had spoken and, and the post reporter was a little late arriving. And again, if it wasn't a big enough story, you might you might share with them your notes. You might and you were, you know, you had a relationship with that person. You might give them a quote. Um, just so that they didn't lose their job or get jammed up. But if the stakes were sufficient, uh, you weren't going to do that, right? You, no one was going to give up a front page scoop or even a, even a, a you know, a, a page lead scoop for um, no matter how you felt about the competition. There was just too much at stake. Mm-hmm. But, you know, if the story was, was going to be a six inch, you know, box, uh, you know, on, on page 10, you had to be decent about it because you saw these people every day, no matter where you went, you were running on the same stories. It wasn't like the news was covering one thing and the post was covering another. They were both competing after the same product to give to the same readership in the morning. Uh, you couldn't, you couldn't live that way day in and day out on, on a knife's edge 
the burnout still existed. Now, let me, is, as to your other question, does that still exist? No, because the point of the whole book is this is over. I, I, w- I was incredibly fortunate to experience this right before it all ended. You know, on big stories, in amidst this this Darwinian fight that, according to you know newspaper historians, rivaled Pulitzer Hearst. It's really the only thing that's comparable to that, you know that that archetype that we all think of when we think of tabloid wars. Pulitzer Hearst, right? This is the thing, the only thing that the, the modern day equivalent. It'll never happen again. Mm-hmm. On big stories, when Elliot Spitzer resigned amidst this Hooker scandal, they, they, the Daily News and the Post would field 40 people in the field, aside at different locations, running all over the country, knocking on every single person who had even a small stake in the story, you know, following up leads, flying all over the country. It didn't matter how far afield a source was, if they were in Florida. Money was no object. It was just a matter of winning. Armies of people would go out, you know, to to do battle against each other. But it's all done now. Uh, You know, digital, digital, in our, for the people who don't know, digital has ruined our industry. Um, We gave the product away for free for, for, for too long. And people began to expect it to be free. And, and the, the revenue centers for these newspapers, the classified advertising and, and, and the large, you know, ads, the coupons, it's all gone online to Craigslist, to cars.com, to Zillow. There's nothing left. It costs a lot of money to produce this product, to, to field these armies to do battle. Right. But there's no money coming in anymore. So where even like, and, and, and it's also not only that, but it's on the newsstand. No one's buying the paper anymore because they can get it for free online. When I got to the news, the, the circulation was like 720,000 daily, Monday through Friday, and, and approaching a million on Sunday. And the Post was right there as well. Today, it's only 10 years later. The news is lucky. I, I think they, you can't even find out what, what the, the true number is anymore because they, they roll it you know, together in some crazy you know, equation with, with with their digital readers, you know, say it's 150,000. Mm. It's, it's, it, they've lost 90% of their readers in just 10 years. Right. So there's no armies in the field anymore. There's nobody in the field anymore. You know, the, the news may now field one runner per shift, Kerry Burke, actually, he's still out there somewhere, probably wow. right now running on some story, but everybody else is gone. The daily news, the New York, New York's picture newspaper, that, that's that was the tagline that you know that's what we called ourselves for for decades doesn't have a photo staff anymore staff, staff photographers it's over and it'll never ever happen again um you know it, it, at least in, in America uh, this was the last gasp this was you know the story of of an industry dying and how that trend played out in one city in America in a very human dramatic way. So it doesn't exist anymore because there's nobody on the street running. Carrie Burke is such an interesting character that we learn a lot about in your book. And there's a, there's a photo section in your book, which is just fascinating because, of course, the picture is worth a thousand words. There's a really elegant photo of him give, downloading his notes. And he's wearing a tie, which was unusual for the runners then. He was well, he was the only one. He he uh, he didn't. 
he didn't think that you should dress like the way he called it a second string Hunter Thompson. He, uh, oh, right. He uh-huh. was a big believer in, in looking, looking official. Um, but you know what? Kerry could do what he wanted and he wore the same thing every day. Um, he just, he wore, he wore black pants, a white shirt and a black tie. And, and if you, it was funny, if you, if you probably looked in Kerry Burke's closet, there's probably 20 of those. <laughs> Right. <laughs> 20 of those outfits lined right. up next to each other like Batman. <laughs> like, you know, right. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. His, uh, his war costume, but there's a section in your book where he reacts to the phrase, you know, that we've all heard, if it bleeds, it leads. And his response to that is, where are you from Princeton? <laughs> Which totally cracked me up. And then he says, you know, in East New York, people want an explanation for the madness outside their doors. And he says, these stories count. I have no apologies for that. What do you think he meant? So he was reacting. When he, when he said that quote, it was great. Some, some newspaper editor from the Times or, you know, some highbrow newspaper asked him if he, if he was part of this leads it leads culture and he's like you know damn damn right i am you know uh you know people want an explanation for the madness going on outside their door the thing that we told ourselves you know every day we had to chase death uh more often than not you know i mean occasionally it was fun you know a different you know a fun political story or you know some kind of scandal but very often the bread and butter of tabloids was death fire crime shootings murder mm-hmm. as kerry said you know murder and mayhem is my business um but you know you needed you needed an ex a rationale to, to justify being outside these people's homes you needed something to tell yourself wh- why am i knocking on this widow's door over and over and over again you know, this was the dark side, right, of, of what we did, just to, to kind of expound upon this, because this is a great point, and I try to get at this in the book. You know, the, the news post-war made us better journalists. It, 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 you know, it, it was uncanny. Whenever we were sent out of town on some national story, we would whip the, the national media, NBC, CBS. They just weren't willing to go as far as we were. They weren't battle-hardened the way that we were. Mm. You know, we did this every single day going up against each other. It was like run. It was like the Harlem Globetrotters versus the Washington, you know, the the uh, whatever the team was that they they we 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 used to run up the score on them because we did it every day. Mm-hmm. But there was a downside to being on that that razor's edge because it pushed us to do things that that might not have been um, particularly nice. You know, it, you 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 constantly had to. You just wouldn't let it go. You know, if if a woman had lost her son. If you knocked on her door and and they told you, you know, I don't want to talk, mm-hmm. um, we weren't going to take no for an answer. Um, and the reason we weren't going to take no for an answer was the very same reason that made us so good on out of time assignments, because we knew that if we didn't knock again, the post would and we would lose. But we needed a rationale, right? Because that eats away at you inside. Mm-hmm. And what we would tell ourselves was that if we weren't here covering this then these people would think that it doesn't matter. Um, that was what Kerry was saying when he said that, you know, uh, people want an explanation for the madness outside their doors in East New York, which is one of the worst neighborhoods in New York. They, 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 if we didn't show up, they would feel like they didn't count, I believe was his, his words. 
And, you know, I, I told myself that for a very long period of time. And, and there's some truth to that. Um, but eventually that rationale gets a little threadbare when you have to look a mother in the eye over and over and over again, asking about what's in her heart hours after she's lost her child. I gotta tell you two stories real quick to kind of kind of illustrate this because you know when I, the book kind of it 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 describes a journey for me. When I got to the news, I was all about glory and and all about winning and seeing my name in you know one of the biggest papers in the country and finally making it to the paper that I always wanted to write for. There was nothing that I wouldn't do. But over time, I cha it changed. I'm gonna tell you real, two quick stories real quick. Um, there was a there was a fire at the Deutsche Bank building in downtown. And these two firefighters, Robert Padilla and Joe Graphic Nino, they, they, they died. They died of uh, smoke inhalation. And I got sent out to Graphic Nino's widow's house in, in Brooklyn, in Dyke Heights. And uh, I spent a couple days uh, staking out her house. You could just imagine laying siege to a, a firefighter's widow's house just so you could document her agony the next day. But it did end there. The day of the funeral, the, the desk wanted me to find out what kind of wood was, was his coffin. Who knows why they wanted to know that, but they wanted to get some detail from inside the viewing room. So I infiltrated the funeral home and I got inside the room and, um, you know, it was a very poignant scene. It, it, it made for great copy, right? There's a flower arrangement with photos of him and his kids and, um, you know, his firefighter's helmet on a closed casket. And I, you know, I don't remember what kind of wood it was, but I, I'm sure I got that detail, but I'm on the way out of the funeral home and a firefighter stopped me. He, you know, who are you? I had to answer him. You know, I'm, I'm from the Daily News. Why are you here? And I, I remember my explanation at the time. And all this, this anecdote is recounted in the book. I said to him, I said, listen, if I'm not here, then his kids will wake up and think that they don't, that this didn't matter, right? When they read, when they're old enough, because he had, you know, one or two kids. When they get old enough to learn about who their daddy was, they're, they're not going. They're going to think that nobody cared if they, if he wasn't in the paper. If there wasn't somebody here to document this, mm -hmm. and he looked at me with scorn. He said, "Do you really believe that?" <laughs> and I didn't. The truth was, I didn't. It was a line of BS. The truthful answer, if I had answered him earnestly and honestly, was, "I'm going to come in here, and I was ordered to come into this room mm -hmm. because if I didn't, the post will, and we're going to get beat." So that was the calculus, right, that drove us ever forward to do to take risks in the field that made us great newspapers and great journalists, but also to do some things that that you know were kind of shaky. One more, one more great story along that that regard. There was this great story where you know you know Derek Jeter, right? The, the oh, short yeah. stuff, the retired shortstop for the Yankees, right? Uh -huh. so, so at some point, Derek Jeter, um, uh, he, he he tried to claim full-time Florida residency because he, he wanted to do that at that, that uh, state tax uh, dodge. You don't have to pay state taxes if you live in Florida. Mm -hmm. And if you could, if you could prove that you live in Florida, if you spent 180, whatever it is, half the year plus one day in Florida, you don't have to pay New York state income taxes. And you know, for Derek Jeter, that could be a lot of money. Sure. But Derek Jeter is always in the newspapers. So some bureaucrat from New York city counted up the days that he had actually been in New York city. <laughs> And proved that he had spent more than half the year in New York, and he was wrong to claim Florida state residency and thus not pay New York state taxes. So the news 
clearly this is, can you imagine, this is a huge story, right? So the news, we went out to, to uh, knock Derek Jeter's house. My share of the story was to stake out his parents' house in northern New Jersey, to ask his parents what they thought about her son being a tax, a tax cheat. And, you know, the first night we went out there, I went out with a photographer named uh, Andrew Theodrakis. Uh, we called him Theo. And he didn't care. You know, he was all about the get, as I was at that particular point. But they didn't show up that day. The following day, we went back out there. And, and then Mrs. Jeter showed up. You know, this, this, this story is in the book. She's, she comes home. She had just come from the supermarket. And she's bringing her groceries up to the porch. And I pounce on her, right? Mrs. Jeter, Mrs. Jeter, what, what do you think about your son being a tax cheat? <laughs> <laughs> Great. You know, you, you, my son does everything right. He's a good boy. My son's a good boy and he does everything. All you guys want to do is tear him down. Ah, oh, she clutches her chest. You're giving me a heart attack, right? She drops her groceries. They go spilling all over the place. And I'm thinking to myself, this is awesome, right? I got the front page tomorrow. I got Mrs. Jeter, right, the mother of the most famous, potentially the most famous celebrity in New York City is having a meltdown, right, right there. And we're getting the photo. Right. But then the problem is I turn around and the photographer wasn't Theodrakis that day. It was another guy named Mike Aldis. And, and Mike wasn't shooting her. So I look at him and I go, Mike, why aren't you shooting her? He goes, I'm not doing it. Oh, I've had wow. it. I go, Mike, this is the front page tomorrow. It's clearly going to be the wood. Mrs. Jeter's crying on her porch. Get her before she stops crying. I'm not doing it. You better do it, Mike, or I'm calling the desk. You're going to ruin my get. Fine. He get takes his thing. And I'll never forget what he said to me. He looked at me with steely eyes. He said, Jack Arino, you're scum. Mm -hmm. And then he took the photo. And indeed, it was the front page the next day. Mm -hmm. And Albans quit. Maybe the next month. It might have been two months. It was very soon thereafter. And here's the funny part. He went out to like Idaho or off the grid somewhere in like Ted Kaczynski land to like, you know, you know, Oregon or Idaho. And he built himself a log cabin <laughs> and, and he had it right. This was what it did to you. It made us the best. This war, this this tabloid war that I document. Right. America's last great tabloid war. It made us the best. I'm convinced it made us great. Some of the best journalists in the country. I'm sure they're great journalists, at the Times and the Wall Street Journal. But as far as, you know, working in the field competing in the field for scoops there was nobody better i mean we were we were shock troops we were honed to a razor's edge and the war made us this way but there was a dark side to it that 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 really really wore you out inside until eventually you know it, the day the mike albans day came for me eventually it came for me I, I don't know at what point maybe three three and a half years in I couldn't do it anymore. I could not knock on one more door and ask a, a grieving mother to talk about the loss of their child. And, and, and it wasn't just once, right? We would just keep knocking. If they didn't want to talk to us the first time, we would just go back again. <laughs> it, 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 eventually I had to say, listen, I, I, I got to get off the street because I, I just, I can't deal with, I can't, I can't, it's killing me inside to, to, to have to invade these people in the most terrible moment of their life day in and day out. So that, yeah, that, that kind of gives you a sense of the journey that, that I went on during the, um, during, during the paper. Yeah, no, the book is very evocative for that. It was interesting to me that you uh, definitely embraced the word tabloid for both of the papers, but that you reacted to the word paparazzi. And, and so tell me why the, you didn't like that word. 
the, the paparazzi are different than than uh, than than the um, than than what we were. Um, the paparazzi, you know, I can't. Obviously, they're they're exclusive. But I've had quite a bit of dealings with paps, as we call them. They're great at what they do. They're but they're 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 completely mercenary. They're driven by money. Um, they'll 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 pursue a celebrity as if they're pursuing, and they'll treat it as such. And we will as well. But you know, as if they're hunting a, a, a an elk, you know, in, in the woods on their moped, and and instead of you know bagging the the animal and bringing it back, you know, to be to be mounted on their wall, they they get the photo. But it's all about money for them. It's it's not about the get, and mm-hmm. and for us it, it was about the get. You know, we we didn't you know we didn't we got paid the same thing whether we we got the get or we didn't. We'd lose our jobs if we got beat enough. But for us, there was just there was a little something different at stake. We were we were monks uh, in the way that we pursued our profession, in the way that we viewed the get. You know, when you read this book, the collection of, of runners and shooters on both the news and the post, we were zealots. It was all about getting the story, getting the front page, uh, telling the tale, making the story as dramatic and as good as possible, beating the post. Those were the things that drove us. Whereas, you know, the, the paparazzi, their interest is a little more pecuniary, um, I would I would say. But they're great at what they do, right? They're steely and they're reliable if you get a good one. Um, you know, I worked at the National Enquirer as well after I left the news. And we, you know, I worked with quite a few steely-eyed, reliable is the word that you would use in my profession, reliable paparazzi. Hmm. And they're they're amazing at what they do. Um, and they'll take just as many risks as we will to get the story. But they're they're driven by it predominantly by by a different motivation than we were. I see. Interesting. Yeah. So after that crazy story where uh, Burke writes the $10,000 check, there are quite a few places in the book where you talk about paying for tips or information or photos. And for me, someone like me, I've heard that happening with the National Enquirer, um, but I didn't realize that it was widespread. Is that common, still commonplace? We never, I I don't, I want to be clear about this. We never paid for information. There's not a single anecdote in the story that shows either the news or the post paying for information. We, we had an end around the way that we would do it is we would, you know, occasionally we would pay for photos. So if, if you, okay, every, I mean, I, I can't tell you how many times we would go out to a scene and, and, you know, talk to some yokel on a corner and who had claimed to see that, you know, what had taken place. And he said, yeah, sure. Cut me, you know, give me 20 bucks and I'll tell you. And the answer was always no. I see. And there's a reason for that. If you pay somebody, their information is unreliable mm. um, because they they have a, a an ulterior motive for talking to you. Mm-hmm. But if the story was sufficient and sufficiently large, we had a, a little bit of a workaround. We could pay for photos, uh, and sometimes that also entailed information as well. And, and that and you you know you would see us paying for video, as was the case with that video scene, but. We would never. The National Enquirer will cut a check for 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 a story, you know, or for information. You know, it's right there in their magazine. We pay big for tips, and they do. But the Daily News and the Post, and any any reputable <laughs> reputable is a charged word. Any mainstream uh, daily journalistic outlet, uh, daily or otherwise, is not going to pay for information. Okay, I see. Thank you for clarifying that. Yeah, that's, sure. that's interesting. It's an interesting. Yeah, it's something that people from outside Russia would, wouldn't know. 
There's another place in the book where you you realize that you've gotten a second source for a piece of information and and you can I can as a reader feel you going aha I you know now I have two sources for this like check that box and in this day and age of the way we consume news do you think that journalistic rule quote unquote rule has evolved yeah i mean there's nobody in the field anymore right i mean there's people but there's comparatively very few people are just rewriting everybody else and this is the problem right it, just look on the daily mail uh, dailymail.com there's nobody actually doing reporting anymore or very few people the wash the, you know who can pay people to do reporting only the the sites that that are have sufficient resources or or the product is so powerful that people are willing to pay through a paywall to get at it the wall street journal you know the new york times and the washington post very few other outlets are 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 have the the, the financial wherewithal to um to to do this so you know what, what what winds up happening is people just rewrite what they see on other sites and they'll link out um, there's very few like not, like shoe leather journalism, nuts and bolts journalism. Get on the phone, beat the bushes, work your sources. Nobody has the money to do that anymore. Um, mm. I mean, I think the Daily News is working with you know. I'm, I talked to you about the armies that were fielded as as recently as 2010, 2011. They, they're working with a skeleton crew now. They're working with like I don't know, 15 people. Mm-hmm. It, it, the the erratic the 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 speed at which my industry has gone into obsolescence is really it's breathtaking and there are ramifications right if everybody's just rewriting everybody else you know and uh, there's no watchers on the wall anymore there are ramifications not just for the way that we consume news but for our democracy as well we, we need to have people going to these city council meetings you know people going through budgets you know holding officials feet to the fire chasing the get revealing what happened in that shooting in east new york but there's no more watchers on the wall because nobody could pay them mm-hmm. so what happens is you know maybe one you know one source will write it up and then everybody else will wind up stealing it and linking out to them and then you know you, you just assume that you hope that the the, the the site that you're linking out to approached the story with ethics and did indeed get two sources, but you don't really know, right? It's, it's kind of a wild, wild west right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I want to uh, come back to the current state of affairs with journalism, but before we do that, I want to talk a little bit about the writing in the book, uh, which I really enjoyed is kind of this sort of New York tough guy, a little bit of film noir and maybe a little bit of uh, Jack Kerouac. So sorry to do this to you, but I'm going to read some of your writing to you. No, please. I, I appreciate it. It's very kind of you. So this was uh, your description of a hotel called The Muse. And you write, inside the lobby was breaking its back to look contemporary. There were black Italian leather divans. Divans. Divans <laughs> and ottomans. And ottomans and cylindrical end tables with copper finishes, a glossy floor of clouded marble trisected by black columns running from the front door to the reception desk, dark paneled wood that wasn't mahogany but looked at under the muted recessed lighting, 
albino bonsai plants, a marble tiled mosaic, and a flesh mount light fixture above it all that looked like the top of the transporter room of the Starship Enterprise. And then you actually go on then to describe a lounge um, off the lobby. And Please do so. It's my favorite paragraph in the whole book. <laughs> and the kind of woman that you can find um, uh, in, this, in this bar, especially after 10 p.m. And what her, yeah, what her style will be and so forth. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know if you have it in front of you, but I'd like. Oh, no, don't worry about it. It's all right. Okay. People have to buy the book. Yeah, um, exactly. It's worth it's worth reading um, for sure for that section. Um, but and there were just other interesting word choices that you have. I think at one point you talk about a goose of a woman, which is such a great term. And then in another when you write about a woman calling out hello, in that way that Hollywood damsels do after the floorboards creak on a dark and stormy night. And I was curious about how you developed this style and if any of it came from your time at the news. So, um, first of all, thank you so much. I appreciate it. I, I, I spent a, an incredible, it took me about five and a half years to write this book. And if the book is 120,000 words, I probably wrote 400,000. Mm. Just um, the final version doesn't look anything like the first one. You know, they'll let you get away with a little bit in newspapers and, and the news because it's a tabloid more than most. But, uh, you know, I've been fighting this fight for, you know, 20 years and driving editors crazy. Um, and and sometimes you win and sometimes you lose. But, no, they don't let you write like that in, 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 uh, in newspapers. You know, because of the nature of what we did uh, at the news was was very much it struck me like a private detective. Um, you know, you're, you're on the ground, you're dropped into a location, and this is the way the book is is written. I, I wanted it to be a fun, accessible, you know, summer read for people that they would really enjoy it. And and you know, you're dropped into a location, and your job is to find out what happened. And you gotta, you know, you gotta sometimes you gotta get rough with the cops, and they gotta get rough with you, and Sometimes you got to hunt down people and go to strange, interesting places and, you know, hotel lobbies and, you know, um, uh, gritty, gritty parts of town. And, and I read a lot of Raymond Chandler um, at, mm. at, 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 uh, while I wrote this book. Raymond Chandler, is, he, he invented the hard-boiled, he didn't invent it, Dashiell Hammett did, but he basically took, you know, Hammett's characters and he, he invented Philip Marlowe, um, who's one of the great characters in all of fiction. He's... He's the archetype for the hard-boiled detective. And I just read Chandler over, I read all of his novels probably, over the course of writing this book, I, I probably wore out the pages. I probably re read them three or four times. And, and I, you know, he, 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 you know, Chandler just turns phrases like it's, uh, you know, he had such a gift. But, you know, that's the way the book is. I wanted to mimic that style Obviously, I'm not a, a Los Angeles private detective like Philip Marlowe was, but there, there's a lot of similarities, right? I mean, Marlowe is constantly fighting with the cops and, you know, interviewing uh, beautiful women and, and trying to, to find out what happened. And, and that was kind of the way that I wanted to convey it. But there was also um, one other really big influence that helped me a great deal in, in, in writing this book. Um, I'm a I'm a big fan, as as I'm sure a lot of people are, of Hemingway. And hmm. Hemingway wrote wrote a book called Death in the Afternoon, uh, which is not one of his more famous uh, novel. It's not a novel, actually. It's it's hmm. it's a it's a piece of journalism. Yeah. I, I highly recommend anybody who loves Hemingway to, to to read it if you haven't. It's it's a it's a, it's a it's a book about bullfighting. 
mm-hmm. um, but it's it's real. It's it's not it's not fiction. It's it's nonfiction, and he he talks about he not only describes what they do, the bullfighters, but he he talks about the emotional aspect of what they do. Right? He talks about you know in that book he, he very saliently describes you know the struggle and the tension of bullfighting is the closer you bring yourself to death, the better the product is going to be and the better you are at your, your trade. And this, this leads to all sorts of, 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 of emotional and psychological tension within the bullfighters. They lose their nerve, uh, you know, at some points and, and, and sometimes they start faking it a lot, a lot in, along the same lines of, of, of how runners and for tabloid, I saw a similarity where, the way that runners for the post and news would would grow cynical and disgusted over time after chasing death for many many years but he kind of gave me a framework for writing about a profession a trade and in a very very you know fun literary way and and describing not only the action of what they did but the emotional underpinnings of that trade and i i read that book a number of times where it really informed the way that I was. I'm sure I, I didn't write anywhere, write anywhere near the way Ernest Hemingway did. I'm not comparing my prose to his or Chandler's. You know, those guys are are, are once in a generation type writers. But I'm just, you know, this was this was this was the kind of thing that I used as a uh, as 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 inspiration. And the passage that you write about, you know, where where it's it's a it's a it's a digression, right? Talking about that woman in the hotel lobby. If you read Death in the Afternoon, Hemingway goes off on these great digressions that that really have nothing to do with bullfighting or sort of to do with bullfighting, but just kind of like he just lets it rip, and 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 you see his incredible gift, and it's just breathtaking. And you read that, and you're like, oh my god, I got to get to a computer because you know just maybe a little touch of his magic rubs off on you, and you have it for just a a, a very small period of time after you've read forty or fifty or hundred pages of that book. And you're able to write a little bit like him in his voice because you've read the book, you know, over and over again for the last, you know, 10 days and the last six hours immediately before you get to the computer. So for that magical window, you're able to kind of channel his voice a little bit and then the effect goes away and then you have to read the book again and immerse yourself in his voice again to get his voice again and then it leaves you. But that's but I'm still it's 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 a replica, right? It's a cheap replica of what he did. It's not. What made these guys so amazing is they created it. They weren't doing it off anybody else. They they were just they summoned this this amazing voice. They were the first. And now, you know, people like me, you know, 50, 60, 70 years later are able to read what they what they wrote and kind of channel it a little bit, a little touch of, you know, their 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 magic for a very small period of time before the effect leaves. But, you know, they created it. And 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 that you know that's the difference between somebody who's a Hemingway and a Chandler or and and um, you know a regular writer like myself. Yeah, it's very effective in setting the mood. But I wouldn't sell yourself short. I think another thing that you did very well was use the language that you guys used. So the dialogue is very authentic feeling and and interesting and different. And, That's kind and, of you to say. I appreciate that. Yeah. So that I, I think uh, that was. I kept the journal. Anybody. Oh, I see. Interesting. Uh-huh. See, I mean, it, it, this goes to you know the, the larger interview. You know, early on in my career with the news, uh, I could tell you exactly when actually. 
too great. You know, I was staked out in front of I real I was staked out in front of the Trump Place Apartments, which is this 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 residential complex on the west side of Manhattan, um, uh, in the fifties by by west of Lincoln Center, and it's right off the Hudson River, and it was a freezing cold late January day, and it was you know January I think of two thousand seven. I was only at the news for a few months, and and there had been a beauty queen, another beauty queen. One of the the beauty queens from Trump's pageants. Uh, her name was Tara Connor, I think, and she had, uh, you know, she had been partying a little bit too much in New York City's clubs, and she had to go to rehab. And uh, Trump gave her, a, you know, an ultimatum: either, you know, give up your crown or or go to rehab. And and when he when she came out of rehab, it it became the, the business of the Daily News to find her, photograph her, and and get words from her. So I, I spent a frosty week in my car, uh, actually in a photographer's car. Um, staked out in front of this building on the west side, uh, chasing. I had a picture of her in my hand of what she looked like. But again, imagine this is you know freezing, frigid January, so people are wearing a lot of clothes. So anytime a blonde would walk by, come around the corner, and start going into this this skyscraper, I would jump out of my car and race after her and and you know say, "Are you Tarak? <laughs> Tarak?" Uh-huh. You know, and you know, people will look at me. You know, several women got very nervous, right? And and you know, sometimes these interactions would carry us into the lobby, and and once into the, actually the elevator, and and it, you know, it was strange, right? It was just, it was really weird. And I, I'd only, again, I'd only been at the news at that point. I got the job in October, so this is January of two thousand seven. Uh, you know, I got the job in October two thousand six. I remember thinking to myself, this is really odd. Right. Mm-hmm. This is this is not a usual. This is not a regular job. <laughs> right. And, and there's a story here because, you know, you know, the post is out there doing the same thing. And, and so I started to keep a journal of what people said and what we did on a daily basis, thinking that, you know, I'm covering stories every day for the daily news. But the best story is really, you know, the job itself and the war mm-hmm. with the post and what's going on, because it's, it's just it, it, People don't do this for a living. It was just, it struck me as, as extraordinary and, and special in a way. And, and uh, I knew I had to get it down and get it out there. And, and that allowed me to kind of recreate some of the, these quotes and, and the language later on when I did write. Yeah, I, that's right. I think it, that uh, worked out very well for you. So I know I have to let you go here. Tell us what you're up to and what you, what you think the state of journalism is today. Uh, well, we touched on it a little earlier, you know, we're, we're in bad shape, right? Um, there's, there's a few outlets that, that have a product that's so premium and so sought after and so good that people are willing to, to pay to, to get past the online paywall. But, you know, beyond the journal, the times and the, and the Washington post, there's, there's not many, a lot of, a lot of places now are, are, are going bankrupt like McClatchy just did or turning to the nonprofit model or, trying to get some billionaire to back them, you know, as a public service. Uh, it's, it's, it's not good. I'm very, very fortunate. Uh, I, I work in an amazing magazine. I'm a senior editor at a place called the week, which is thriving and is one of the very, very few print products to, to retain their readership in America. It still has upwards of 500,000 paying subscribers uh, mm-hmm. uh, every, every week, which is which is un, unprecedented. I mean, I, the, the company recently sold, I think it went for more than, than all of Time Inc.'s assets did, um, you know, including Sports Illustrated. It, it, so I'm very, very fortunate, right? But there, it could just as easily have gone the other way, and it has for a lot of journalists. Mm-hmm. Um, so 
we just got to, you know, push forward and uh, kind of look, look ahead and hope there's a better day. Yeah, I hope. Well, as part of this uh, series of episodes that I'm doing, I hope that we are we can start a conversation about what we're going to do as a society and a, and a nation. How, what, how are we going to grapple with this? So in our last minute here, I just wondered if you'd like to uh, tell the listeners where they can find the book or follow your work or anything you'd like to share. Yeah, you, you could absolutely please uh, follow me on Twitter, mjacarino1, M-J-A-C-C-A-R-I-N-O-1 one on Twitter. I'd love to hear what you think about the book. You could buy it on Amazon, barnesandnoble.com. Uh, go to Fordham Press, which is the publisher is Fordham University Press Empire State Editions. Uh, there's a there's a there was an option for a promo code news twenty twenty. NEWS 2020. I think you might be able to get 10, 15% off if you buy it. Give it a shot. It's a great book. It's a breezy read. It reads like a private detective novel. Uh, the language was slaved over. Uh, I, I hope you enjoy it. And uh, thank you so much, Jennifer, for the time and inviting me on and helping me get the work, the word out about this work. I really, really appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you very much for writing the book and the work that you did and do and for coming on the show. It was a joy. That's it, everybody. You've made it through another episode of Dear Discreet Guide, Trouble at Work. During the pandemic, we'll be changing our format in honor of those who are quarantined or working on the front lines. We'll put out shorter shows on a daily or near daily basis early in the morning to start your day on a positive and interesting note. We'll be considering work-related issues relevant while COVID-19 is impacting the world. If you have a question or a comment or a message for our listeners, please get in touch. We'd love to hear from you. You can reach us through the website, discreteguide.com, D-I-S-C-R-E-E-T, where you can also find other resources about working better together. Thank you for joining my quest to improve our workplaces, our work lives, and our lives in general. And thanks for listening. We look forward to returning to our old format when the world has returned to a more normal state. In the meantime, please hang in there, stay safe, and know that I care about you.